The third case for argument is Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press versus United States. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. Katie Townsend of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press on behalf of Appellant. In the District of Minnesota, there are certain specific types of judicial records, namely applications and orders filed pursuant to the Pen Register Act and Section 2703D of the Stored Communications Act that are filed automatically under seal and maintained under seal indefinitely. The Reporters Committee has sought access to those sealed judicial records because, as it pled in its amended application, it has a presumptive right under both the First Amendment and common law to inspect those court filings, and it's being denied that right. That denial of access to two judicial records that the Reporters Committee asserts it has a First Amendment and common law right to inspect is, standing alone, sufficient to demonstrate a is a sufficient concrete injury to dem for purposes of Article Three standing. I have a, a, a predicate question, real quickly, before we get into anything. How is this a case that can come to us on appeal? Um, I don't understand post posture wise. So normally, this would come in a writ of mandamus, and that's authorized by the All Writs Act. But this came in the context of an application, and the government was never joined as a party. So even before standing, I don't understand how we even have jurisdiction over this appeal. The government was joined as a, as a party at the district court level and, and made an appearance. I think the district court indicated that it was an appropriate, um, a, an appropriate party. The amended application that the Reporters Committee filed for access to the records at issue was dismissed by, by the district court, making it a, a final order that's immediately appealed. the government never formally intervened, so I don't know how the government – I know the government appeared, but the government never formally intervened. So for, per, for legal purposes, I don't know how we, how we even have adverse parties here. You're really just suing the district court uh, who didn't release the, the papers. Well, I think, I think, Your Honor, the, the government has appeared throughout this litigation. It's here now to argue that there is no standing for the Reporters Committee to seek access. But did, you just said it was made a party. An appearance and a party are two different things. Uh, well, it was – the district court determined and at, at early in the litigation that the government was the appropriate party to be – to respond to the to the reporters committee's application I for think access. I that's what we're questioning. Does that make any sense when it seems to me the party is the district court because it's the district court's policy that's at issue. It's not the US Attorney's office policy. And, and your honor, I don't I don't disagree I don't disagree with you writ large in the sense that the the request for access is made to the district court in the first instance. We're talking about the district court's records. However, they were materials that were filed and submitted in connection with the applications by by the government. The posture so, here is just a little mind-boggling for me. You're essentially, it's a blanket, not a case-specific, where we know the U.S. Attorney's Office has issued a search warrant of a particular place, and we want to see that particular one, in which case I, I can understand that. This is a blanket uh, attack 
on the district court's policy that the district court is the deciding entity. It just doesn't it, it's mind by and there's no party on the other side. I, it's well, let me take a step back, Your Honor, okay. because I think help us. I, I, I think um, I don't think this is a, a sort of what I would characterize as a, a blanket uh, attack or, or challenge of the district court's rule. What it the relief that we have sought at the and, and I should note that that relief at the direction of the district court came after something like eight months of negotiations or discussions with the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Clerk's Office and was very targeted, as the district court instructed us, to be a kind of workable um, solution to redress the lack of access that we, that we were seeking. The, 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 the types of relief that we're seeking, although it is effectively styled as a rule change um, to provide for unsealing after 180 days has both a retrospective and I think what we could call kind of a prospective component. There are existing materials. So this isn't an open-ended change your policy. There are existing materials, Pen Register Act materials and Stored Communications Act Section 2703D materials presently under seal in the district court. Those materials would be subject to this rule change and unsealed. We could ask directly for those materials to be unsealed, but that wouldn't address future filed materials. So that's the sort of perspective well, relief component. And here's the problem I'm having. I think that what you did in the district court was fine. I think that was fine. I think you can ask the district court for whatever relief you want, and if the district court's willing to entertain it, that's fine too. But I don't think you can appeal. I mean, unless you're, unless you're bringing a writ of mandamus, I don't know how you could appeal a decision that's not a formal case to us. You would you would need to bring a writ to us, not just merely say, well, I don't like the way the district court decided this application, which is a weird, as Judge Grunder mentioned, is a weird procedural posture to begin with. Well, I think, Your Honor, the reason the procedural posture is the way it is is because we have, it's not dissimilar to a situation where a member of the press or public moves to unseal, let's say, warrant materials connected to a specific criminal investigation. Often in most jurisdictions, including including this one, you can't intervene necessarily, or including in the District of Minnesota, you can't intervene in a criminal case to request for material to be unsealed in the way that you can in a civil proceeding. You, you're still making the request to the district court because it's the district court's records, but I don't think it's just, I wouldn't dispute, frankly, that the government has an interest in whether or not material that it's filed under seal and is arguing should be maintained under seal, that's their merits argument, um, that, they have an, that, that they have an interest in making those arguments to the district court and opposing our motion to unseal in much the same way that if you have two civil litigants um, opposing a third party motion to intervene and unseal, they may it's their burden, frankly, to demonstrate that sealing is appropriate. And so I, I, I think that the, the, the notion that the district court treated the government who opposed unsealing on the merits as the opposing party in the, in this litigation, I think is, I think is appropriate. And in terms of the, uh, standing to appeal, um, what we're talking about is a situation where the district court entered an order dismissing our petition to unseal judicial records on the basis that we lack standing and lack standing to even make that request in the first instance in the district court. And that's an uh, that order dismissing our application is an immediately appealable order that's going to have impacts for the reporters committee moving forward 
in this litigation, um, in subsequent litigation where we may move in the district court to unseal judicial records. It'll have impacts for other members of the press and public who may seek access to material. Excuse Let me, me as a practical matter, I, I think what you said is the remedy you're seeking is anything that's already filed that's over 180 days old gets gets unsealed, and then prospectively, as things become 180 days old, they get unsealed. Do you understand? I mean, there, the the mountain of problems with that seems to me to be immeasurable in the sense that there are hundreds of people for whom pen registers and warrants like that are issued who are never charged. And and I think, as a general rule, things like that are never made public. Um, and there's also some where there might be a confidential informant who is identified. So you're putting people's lives at risk and things like that. Uh, there's just a mountain of issues that if there's this blanket, everything gets unsealed. I just don't know how as a practical matter that would work. Let me, um, I'll address that in two ways, Your Honor. First, I'll, I'll note that um, that's a merits question, I think. I agree um, It's I, a question I, I, about I whether I'm, we're I'm entitled. Yeah. And that is what Your Honor has articulated is the argument that the government made below uh, on the merits that the district court never reached. And so the question before this court is, does the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press have a right um, or is it suffering an injury by the fact that it's being denied access to these materials writ large? So not redacted versions that may redact the names of confidential informants, not materials that were filed maybe 10 years ago um, in connection with a criminal prosecution that's long since since been resolved. Um, so all of those materials are subject to, to this rule. So I, I would argue that we have quite good arguments on, on the merits, as other courts, including the D.C. Circuit in Leopold, have recognized. That said, we're not there, and that's why I'm standing before your honors right okay. now. That's fair enough. I, I mean, I think you're right. I definitely jumped into the merits. All right, but let's talk about, was it ever pled that we intend to use something in, in any way to, to write a story, to do any other than we're interested, which I don't think is enough. Respectfully, Your Honor, I, I think it is enough. The Reporters Committee asserted a color, colorable right to inspect a particular type of judicial records that are under seal in the district court. The Reporters Committee was not, I think, as a matter of law, and this is what we articulate in our briefing, required to plead or prove more than that. And well, that's where the district court, I think, went Let me ask awry. this. Did the pleading actually say we attempted to get these and were unable? The, I saw that in your reply brief. I didn't see that in the pleadings. Well, the, the, the pleading doesn't expressly say that in part because unlike a situation, um, and we cite, for example, Your Honor, um, Aikens and Public Citizen Against Department of Justice, Supreme Court cases that deal with the statutory standing in the context of the stat, a statutory right of access, where by its very nature, there's a predicate denial. So if I may make a request under the Freedom of Information Act to an agency, the agency denies that, I then have standing to pursue access to that information for whatever reason, with no additional showing, um, in the district court. The reason that, that there isn't that kind of predicate denial is because we're making the request in the first instance to the district court. It is the district court's records. So there's no dispute below, and I would argue it's judicially noticeable beyond reasonable dispute that these materials 
are in fact under seal in the district court. We've asserted a colorable right of access to them. We've asked the district court for access to those materials because we're being denied. But under Lujan, um, and, and that's, I mean, that's sort of a key case on this very point, even though it was an environmental case, there needed to be a definite plan to see a particular animal. I think it was like an endangered species type case. And here the equivalent would have been, oh, and as an example, we, one of our members is writing a story next week on the use of pen registers in drug cases. And so we need to access all the drug cases. And so that would be sort of the, so why doesn't Lujan itself sort of say that there's no standing here? Because there's no, and to use the court's words, definite intention uh, in that case to see the animals, but definite intention to write something here. I think I'd respond to that in, in, in two ways quickly, Your Honor. I, I would say that um, the approach that we've advocated for is actually directly consistent with, unlike the district court's approach, binding Supreme Court precedent interpreting these issues. So not just public citizen against Department of Justice and Aikens, but more recent decisions, Justice Kavanaugh's majority opinion in TransUnion, uh, Justice Alito's majority opinion in Spokio, which cited favorably to those decisions for the very proposition that we're asserting here, which is when the information, when the injury is informational and it's pursuant to a sunshine law, where the where the injury is in fact a deprivation of of information, there's nothing additional that needs to be shown. Um, that's what Aikens stands for. That's what uh, Public Citizen against Department of but Justice. But TransUnion also says, and this is consistent with Lujan, that a, a mere or bare informational injury is not enough. That there needs to be some sort of. I think it was they relied on a DC no an Eleventh Circuit decision that says there needs to be some downstream harm. And what I'm missing here, I can't see where it is, is the downstream harm anywhere pleaded in the complaint. I'd like to um, reserve a little bit more time for rebuttal, but let me respond to that um, quickly. The sort of adverse results or downstream consequences language that I think was incorrectly picked up by the Sixth Circuit in gray for, is a, candidly, I think, a misreading of TransUnion. So what TransUnion's says is that these cases, Aikens, Public Citizen, the cases that we argue control here, um, are uh, those cases arise in a context where the bear, where the injury in fact is in fact the deprivation of injury. It's not a procedural injury subject to um, or under another statutory framework. That's why Justice Kavanaugh distinguished public citizen in Aikens and said those don't apply here because we're talking about an informational injury under a procedural provision of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, so I think our our bottom line argument is that there is no additional, nothing additional that needs to be shown in this context, not in some context where there's a procedural harm or a procedural um, injury alleged sub, sub, subsequent or arising out of a, a different statute whose goal it is not to provide government transparency. That's not what we're dealing with here. And I think those cases very much support, frankly, our, our position, Your Honor. Thank you, Ms. Townsend. May it please the court. I'm Kimberly Svensson, Assistant United States Attorney on behalf of the United States. Chief Judge Schultz 
properly held that the reporters committee in this case lacked standing to seek wholesale changes to the district court's ceiling. Can, can I ask a preliminary question? Yes. Uh, Ms. Townsend said the United the government was a party to this case. Is the government a party to this case? Your Honor, the government, as the court pointed out, never formally intervened in the case, and Ms. Townsend correctly stated that the government appeared at the court's request to So um, who does the government respond. represent in this? Who does the U.S. Attorney's Office represent in this case? The U.S. Attorney's Office represents the United States. There was some substantial discussion at the district court level about that very question in the initial hearings that took place before the court, where the government sought to clarify whether the court was asking it to represent, for example, the clerk's office or the court itself, because the government wanted to figure out, you know, whether there was some kind of conflict there or whether there needed to be another U.S. Attorney's Office brought in to do these things. And the court made clear at that time, no, you don't represent the clerk's office. You're not going to be doing that. I want you to work together with the clerk's office and with the reporters committee to have these discussions. Um, it appeared at that time that what the was there ever any discussion of going before a different court? Uh, you know, it's almost like the court is deciding whether its own policy is correct. That, that's right, Your Honor. I guess on one hand, that's normal. But on the other hand, in a litigation context, it seems unusual. Well, and so I agree that's part of the reason that I think it's clear that, that there is no standing in this case, no injury in fact, because... Um, the court at various points throughout this litigation has pointed out that this is a strange case. This is a little bit of rulemaking. It's a little bit of policymaking. Um, and things that federal courts aren't allowed to do as part of the case or controversy requirement. Well, and, you know, so um, courts do do rulemaking and they call for comments and they call for parties to intervene and, and, and to provide almost like a meeky help, but it's not formalized. All of that is fine. But none of that is appealable. Like if you went to the, my old court, the Minnesota Supreme Court, and did rulemaking, you can't like appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so I don't understand even – I just – I guess I don't understand how this is a case and how it's here. So I don't disagree with any of the court's concerns on that. Um, obviously, that it's not an issue that the government briefed because it's not one that had been briefed. But clearly the court has the ability to determine its own jurisdiction before going to any of these questions. And so – I can't disagree with that. I think that, um, as the court has pointed out, you know, it's odd because there are different people's entities that should have been at the table here. Um, and that's why the district court has a federal rules committee that takes up these very questions that the reporters committee is seeking to raise in this case. And it's one where, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office is represented, the clerk's office, the federal defender's office. So why, in didn't, fact, why didn't this go through that process? I, I, I'm, I'm confused as well. That's exactly the question I'm seeking to raise. Um, you know, counsel for the reporters committee, Ms. Walker, who is not appearing today but has appeared on the briefs in this case, is actually a member of that federal rules committee. And so they have an avenue to raise this issue. Did the district court talk about that issue at all? The district court said at the first um, hearing that happened back... The initial application went through the process, right? Or it went through a process. The initial application, um, the, the government was asked to appear. They had this um, first status conference that I didn't appear at, but having reviewed the transcripts, um, the court pointed out that if what you're asking me to do is change the local rules, I can't do that. That has to go you know, before the full court. But I think that the court was just asking to see whether the parties could come to some agreement. Because the government does agree that transparency and public access are 
an important thing. Um, the government agreed to engage in that process, and we were able to agree to a number of um, changes that went through the clerk's office and sort of were then adopted. Did those changes affect any of the other parties that would have been part of this committee? Um, I, I think they were more in the nature of administrative changes. So they didn't change the process that was already happening, but what they did was, for example, add flags to those sealed dockets to make it easier for the reporters' committee to take stock of how many you know, okay. orders there were and that kind of thing. So um, you know, I agree with the court that, that there was a process that could have taken its course before the Federal Rules Committee to do this. Um, additionally, all of those cases that the Reporters Committee has cited deal with individual cases where a party is seeking access to, you know, either maybe sometimes all of the documents from one individual case, but in a situation where the court can look at a concrete and particularized, you know, injury that they're claiming to have, conduct that balancing test between the public's right of access and the other interests that are at play, specifically you know, the government's interest in its investigations, perhaps a third party's interest in their privacy, and can do that in a concrete way and come to a decision. Um, to the extent that the Reporters Committee is taking the position that all of that Supreme Court case law, Lujan, you know, doesn't apply because here we're talking about a special interest, which is that um, public right of access that somehow applies differently in those cases. Supposedly it's put in the pleading, you know, I asked this of opposing counsel. Yeah, as an example, we want to access this category because we have a reporter doing an investigative uh, journalism piece on, you know, use of pen register and drug crimes. Would that have converted it to um, sufficient standing to um, seek disclosure of at least that class and maybe the entire class of pen register uh, evidence or, or records? So first, I would just say that that case isn't before the court, and I, I think that the district court would need a chance to take a crack at that um, first. But I think there's obviously a line to be found, and I think that one is on the far side of the line where they don't have standing because they're not identifying particular documents. You know, they're asking, I guess, the court or the clerk's office or somebody to determine which ones relate to drug cases and then unseal them. And again, that's happening in sort of a, a big pot where nobody can um, do that balancing test in a concrete and particular Of course, they're way. also sealed, right? And so if you're making that request and you're saying, hey, I want all drug crimes, it's not like you can point to, okay, I know this case had a pen register. I know that hate case had a – so, I mean, it's kind of a catch-22 a bit. And they would have to make that argument before the district court as to – sort of the plan for how we're going to identify these and how it is that the court is going to then be in a position to make a concrete and particularized inquiry. Um, this case is not different from those cases where a petitioner alleges a general and broad injury like Lujan, like Lance versus Kaufman. Um, in the Valley Forge Christian College case, um, an organization was challenging government conduct under the First Amendment, like the Reporters Committee here, and tried to take the position that that was a special kind of injury, and it should be treated differently for purposes of standing. And the court in that case stated that there's no sliding scale of standing based on which constitutional claim you're making, and that the First Amendment doesn't provide a special license to roam the country in search of governmental wrongdoing, which appears to be exactly what's you know, taking place in this case. Um, the reason they said that is because preventing those kinds of claims tends to assure that the legal questions presented to the court will be resolved in a concrete, factual context. And that's exactly what needs to happen in these unsealing cases. 
Um, the Reporters Committee has at times made motions to unseal these very kinds of documents in particular cases. Um, they talk about a case involving an FBI agent in the District of Minnesota in which they moved for and were granted without objection from the government unsealing of Pen Register Act and Stored Communications Act documents. That's a proper kind of claim to make in which the court can then um, you know, do the balancing, make an inquiry if the government should say that they uh, still have an interest in having these documents sealed um, and a case in which standing is properly pled and exists. So uh, because the Reporters Committee has not suffered an injury in fact that's properly addressed by the federal court, Chief Judge Stills properly denied their application. Thank you. Very well, thank you. Ms. Townsend, I'll give you a couple of minutes. This is uh, I appreciate that. an interesting question. I appreciate that, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, the government indicated that the Reporters Committee didn't cite or only cited cases involving requests for access to judicial records in which the petitioner, be it the Reporters Committee or someone else, was able to identify those by, let's say, case number, specific records. Um, that's, not, that's not the case. We cite Leopold. We cite Enrique Granick, which also dealt with standing, also denied relief on the merits on the basis of basically the arguments the government is making here, which is this is a lot of material. It has nothing to do with, I, I, maybe I take issue with it's that much material. Let me ask but, you, is there any yes. other case other than Leopold that allowed or dealt with standing in other than a case-specific request? A Granick, and Ray Granick, which is a Northern District of California case expressly addresses standing, found that petitioners had standing to unseal various categories, request for access to various categories of uh, um, electronic surveillance materials, and um, then denied relief on the merits. And again, basically the grounds the government is asserting now, which is this is a lot of material. The Albury case, which is referred to in our briefing as well as Media Miki's brief, is in fact the example that the government gave of a reporter's committee application to unseal pen register and stored communications act material um, in an in a quote individual case except to Judge Strauss's point, um, we didn't have the case numbers. All of that material was under seal. We asked for material connected to a specific criminal prosecution. So the hurdles, the actual practical hurdles to what the government is suggesting, even in the, what they characterize as an individual case, would effectively make it impossible for members of the public, even well-informed members of the public, to actually get in the courthouse door to ask for some of this uh, relief. And I will, uh, um, Your Honor, just wanted to address briefly this notion about, about the, the rules committee, which certainly is something the government could have argued in the district court but, but did not, um, and the idea that courts are not permitted to grant this kind of relief in the context of, of a case or controversy. Again, there are examples of, of courts doing that, but um, we're not asking for a rule change. We have not challenged Local Rule 49.1, which permits these applications to be filed without a motion automatically under seal. What we've asked for is a court order that subsequently requires the government to make an additional showing if those materials need remain, continue to remain under seal after 180 days. So we've asked for a court order that the chief judge of the district court can certainly grant, which addresses practices and procedures in his district court. He has the authority to do that. Um, this is not a situation where we've asked for relief. Whether we're entitled to that relief on the merits or not, that a court is unable to give us as a matter of Article, article 3. 
Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Court appreciates both counsel's appearance and arguments. The case is submitted and we'll figure it out and issue an opinion in due course.